Hi, this is the Home Bodies Yoga Podcast, and I'm Rebecca Hirsch, and this is our 23rd episode. In this podcast, I ask people what they do when they unroll their yoga mat and tell you a little bit about what's going on on mine. If you have a question about your yoga practice or a suggestion for a guest, please find me, please email me at Rebecca at homebodiesyoga.com. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Homebodies Yoga Podcast. To find out more about each show, please go to our website, homebodiesyoga.com. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Well, it really feels like it's been like a thousand years since we've talked um, to, or since I've talked, I guess we're not talking, since I've talked to all of you or a few of you, I really don't know how many people listen to this podcast, still can't figure it out. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a while. Um, so we were in Asheville last week um, and I went with my husband and my son who's two Hudson and we met some friends there with their little kid who's also two and we had such a good time we actually stayed like in the mountains outside Asheville and it was so beautiful like some of the best some of the most beautiful hiking I've ever done like including in California or Oregon like just great hiking and really good if you have like a two-year-old because Hudson is still in the hiking backpack so you know he doesn't really want to stay in there for long hikes anymore uh but we were able to do these like really nice short hikes that were like just so gorgeous. Um, and he actually even hiked. I was like so proud of him. He hiked like up a pretty difficult terrain, like really rocky and steep terrain. He, he hiked about a mile on his own for a two year old, like pretty impressive. <laughs> uh, so that was a really good trip. Um, and yeah, I was thinking about that with my practice because then when we got back, um, I was like all ready to like really get into my practice again because I really, you know, did really only short practices while we were on vacation, kind of like, you know, vacation yoga, like quickie little things in the morning with like everybody walking around. But then Hudson has been having some health issues. He's totally fine. Uh, he's actually on the mend now. But uh, that has been pretty consuming, not only of my mind, but of my time and my just everything. Um yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about the yoga practice, and I always kind of come back to this one quote. Uh, it's Krishna Krishnamacharya, but I can never find the exact quote. But it's something like um, 90% of the benefits of the yoga practice come from the 10% easiest poses or simplest poses. And I just find that to be so true. Um and, and, and it's e easy for me to forget, right? Like I'm kind of planning some, I'm planning some private, uh, I'm, I'm doing some like private classes for um, like virtual private classes. And I'm like kind of planning some stuff for some other clients. And, you know, sometimes there's this temptation as a yoga teacher when you really want to do a good job to like include every cool pose or cool variation you've ever learned or that you've figured out in the last like, you know, 10 years of practicing or 20 years of practicing. Um, and it, those classes never end up that great, right? Because it's like kind of rushed or it's like too complex. Um, and, and really, you know, the, the thing is, I really believe in the power of yoga. So like those simple poses are the ones that make me feel better, right? Like when I was on vacation and I just needed a moment to myself, like it was the simple poses that made me feel better. Or I needed to stretch after like, you know, going for a long hike. It was like the, 
the simple, easy poses that made me feel good. And it's the same, you know, when I've been anxious about Hudson or, you know, uh, feeling overwhelmed with what's going on with him or, or just like needing a minute to myself because, you know, when your kid is sick, they're kind of like hanging on you. It's the simple poses that I need. You know, those aren't the times where I'm reaching for these complex, difficult, you know, kind of like wild variations. Not that I don't think that's fun, but I just think it's, I keep having to remind myself that like yoga works and like these simple, easy poses, quote unquote, easy poses, these like, um, just like kind of vanilla practices uh, are are like the bread and butter of, of my my own practice um so that's something i've been really thinking about and it, it actually it reminded me of uh so a long time ago I, I like to buy psychology today on the when i go on the airplane only on the airplane i buy it like at the airport bookstore i you know it's like one of those pipe pop psychology magazines uh but there was an article in it uh i don't remember where evan and i were flying but anyway i was like reading the article on the plane and it said basically said there's two kinds of people there's maximizers and these are people who need to know every single option available before they make a decision and they're satisfiers, right? Someone who's like, okay, I need a blue shirt. It needs to be short sleeve. And then like the first blue shirt they see that's short sleeve, they just get that one. And Evan is such a satisfier and I am such a maximizer. <laughs> and really, you know, I have to say like, as far as anxiety is concerned, Evan is definitely right to be a satisfier. Like being a maximizer really contributes much more to anxiety because it's like, well, is this the right choice or is this the right choice? Should I pick this one or this one? And it definitely, you know, uses a lot more thought power and energy to make these decisions that, you know, not aren't, not all decisions are so important that you need to evaluate every option. Um, I don't know, like for a stupid example is whenever we go on road trips, um, I like cannot pick a snack at the gas station before I look at all of them. And it's like, they're all the same. Evan calls me a snack inspector. Anyway, like, you know, they're all the same exact thing basically. And it's like, just get something, just like get the pretzels, but I can't, I have to look at every single thing. It makes zero sense. Um, anyway, but I was thinking about that as it applies to the yoga practice. And I think like, you know, so often I think I have to maximize, like I have to like do, you know, one of each kind of pose, or I have to do every single pose, or I have to do it for an hour, or I have to like, you know, whatever, do a fun variation, or I have to get this exact stretch, or every practice has to have a backbend and a forward fold, and every practice has to have sun salutations, or whatever, and, and really like, the practice is for us and like what it should do it be is satisfying <laughs> it should be a satisfying practice and the same goes for planning classes like when I'm planning classes for a private client or planning a class to teach like people don't need the maximum class every class what they need is to leave feeling satisfied <laughs> I don't know this is what I've been thinking about um yeah so just having these like small satisfying practices lately that's really what my practice has been like, and I think it's going to stay that way because, you know, I'm just getting more and more busy and that's what I need right now in my life or, or, uh, you know, I, I don't need to have the maximum practice. What I need is like satisfaction, I guess, in my yoga practice. I don't know if that metaphor went on too long. Is it a metaphor? I guess not. I don't know if talking about that theory went on too long. Um, anyways, Today on the show, I'm really excited to welcome Emma Stern, and 
I have known Emma for a long time. We taught together in San Francisco and she's just such a bright light. Um, she, she's like so bubbly and uh, enthusiastic and also just so sharp and intellectual at the same time. Like she is clearly really, really thoughtful and like just very quick, like quick to uh, like quicken her emotional intelligence. Like I feel like as a teacher, she's really good at reading what it is people need, which makes sense because she ended up, you know, as I've known her becoming a mental health professional. So it makes a lot of sense, but she's got, she's got just a real sense of kind of, uh, reading it, reading the room and reading what each one of her students needs, which is such a gift. I think, uh, maybe the most important part of being a yoga teacher. Uh, and she's also a mental health professional, meaning, you know, she's doing therapy for a lot of different people, particularly people with a background of trauma. So we talk a lot about um, making uh, all yoga classes more trauma-informed, including, including more rigorous um, vinyasa classes, and just about kind of the juxtaposition of somatic therapy and yoga. Uh, it's a really good chat. So I really recommend uh, staying on to listen. And uh, yeah, well, here is Emma Stern. Welcome, Emma. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks so much for having me, Rebecca. Sure. So um, I want to jump right in. Um, when we first met years ago in San Francisco, you were in school to be both a therapist and a yoga instructor, and now you are a mental health professional and a yoga instructor. Mm -hmm. um, so can you talk a little bit about what that journey was like? Yeah. So actually, you know, I think when we met, I was pre-application, like starting to think about what I wanted to do when I grew up. I would have probably been like 23, 24 and um, kind of planting seeds. Yoga was the thing I always loved. I always knew that. Um, I had practiced yoga for about 10 years before I even thought about being a yoga teacher. And it just kind of was this thing that was so constant in my life and so important to me that I knew I wanted to just enrich myself with as much yoga as I could. And I think after I started teaching yoga, I realized that there was something that was missing um, in my professional life. At the time I was working in nonprofits and I, like many others, came to the nonprofit world because I wanted to do mission-driven work and work that impacted people and helped and uh, promoted change. And in nonprofit work, I wasn't in direct service. So I knew that the organizations I was working for did really good work, but I wasn't connected to that. And teaching yoga was really cool because you could teach and literally see, you know, people experiencing feeling being in their body, going through all these things and walking out feeling better. Um, and, you know, obviously that's not always the situation, but yoga was something for me that brought so much um, change and support into my life that seeing that in others and, you know, especially the longer I'd been teaching um, when people shared, you know, how, how yoga impacted them it really hit me how big the healing power of this practice was. Um, I started grad school. I think I had been teaching maybe two or three years. Um, and at that point I started teaching full time and I decided to do a somatic psychology program. 
really a lot of the reason I went to grad school to be a therapist was because I was trying to think of a career that would like match up what was missing. Like, I wasn't in direct service and I realized that was something I wanted to be working with people directly. I also loved certain elements of teaching yoga. Like I liked being my own boss and, you know, obviously there's studio management, but you have a lot more independence than in other careers. So I kind of said, what other careers can I really, you know, work for myself? Um, and it kind of was a gamble. I had a friend who was a therapist and really encouraged me to do it. And honestly, I think up until I started actually being a therapist, um, I was kind of nervous, like, am I sure this is the right track for me? Which is funny because I felt the same way about being a yoga teacher up until I started doing it. It was something I valued so much and didn't really know if it was for me. I just knew I, I, I loved the, uh, the yoga practice and what it, what it stood for. So yeah, it, it just sort of all blended over time. And, you know, they go so well together because yoga encourages embodied awareness, which essentially makes you feel your feelings. It makes you notice what's going on in your body. And I think that's often what's missing in therapy. You know, our minds are so sharp. They're so good at protecting us that we find all these ways not to feel our feelings. When you go into your body and it's like, uh, it's there. I can't, I can't not work with this. So mindfulness with therapy, it, it works really well together. And that's something that's, I think, always been a piece of the yoga practice that sometimes gets lost in the translation to the West is that it's always encouraged us to really do this internal work so we can then show up for the world around us. Yeah, I love that. Um, I, it, I, I don't think I'm sure what somatic therapy is and how it's different than like therapy that I think of in my mind. You know, I love that you asked that because I think most people aren't. It's like this big buzzword that <laughs> we all throw around somatics. Everyone uses it and no one actually knows what it means. So it's actually really simple and it's probably not that different than what you're thinking of. So somatics are any practice that encourages mind-body integration. So it's not just yoga, it's tai chi, meditation, um, I think anything can be, and I think this really goes into your home practice theme of this podcast, anything can be a somatic practice, just in the way that so many things can be yoga practices when we really do them with intention and with noticing. So somatics are really anything that encourages that mind-body connection. And when that lens is brought into therapy, it can be done in a number of ways. I mean, there's therapists who do movement. There's even therapists who'll use touch work. Um, but for me, a lot of times it's just checking up on people's body. Maybe sometimes I'll, with certain clients, um, offer different movement and see what they feel, see if it opens up any noticings. Sometimes um, just something as simple as putting your feet on the ground while you're talking about something can give you a lot more grounding. Um, but in terms of the actual therapy, it doesn't look that different. I think there's just way more questions like, hey, what are you noticing in your body? Are you noticing anything in your body? <laughs> Take a deep breath, you know, things like that. It's bringing in the body really consciously. Mm. That, yeah, I always find that that really helpful when I'm feeling anything to consider where it is in my body. Yeah. Um, and I find it helpful in times of like anxiety. Like I actually remember learning that in yoga school, like, oh, if you're anxious while you teach, like put your hand on the wall or <laughs> things like that. Mm -hmm. um, are there certain tricks that you use in your own body when you're with a client? If it's, I don't know, I'm sure there are situations where sometimes you get a little 
in yourself? Are there ways that you refocus? Are there any tips and tricks for that? Totally. For me, this is so simple, but leaning back, leaning Mm. back on something that supports me because then it's like, this isn't on me. I'm being supported. It's kind of reclaiming um, my own support in the moment because it is, it's a lot to hold someone's energetic process. And, you know, the work I do is specializing in trauma. So there's, there's big things that come up and sometimes just taking that support so I can be there with someone else. Uh, it's so simple, but it, it's so powerful. Yeah. And actually um, we're on a video call, but when I see yeah. you lean back, it really does feel, I feel like all of a sudden you're ready to listen. Like there's this sense yeah. where I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh, there you are. Oh, okay. I'm ready to tell you about whatever. <laughs> nice. Yeah. The therapist is here. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and actually yeah, that's perfect segue. Cause I did want to talk to you about, um, I talked with Keisha on the podcast about the Driven Yogi and you doing a class for her, uh, for the Driven Yogi about trauma-informed yoga. Um, And I find it, I really love this new lens of which to look through yoga. And I am wondering if you'll tell us a little bit more about what it is and and what, what it's about. Yes, I am so excited about this training with the Driven Yogi um, and especially you know, something that was so great working with Keisha is she really, the one thing she knew was she just wanted to be inclusive, like create a training that can benefit all yoga teachers. And that really lined up with my um, sort of personal, (laughs) my personal mission for myself is to figure out ways to bring trauma-informed principles into my classes as a power vinyasa teacher. Um, Something I think I've noticed is that there's a huge lacking of trauma-informed principles in rigorous asana. And the irony with that is that when we experience trauma, we produce more stress hormones. So folks with a trauma background are just as likely to show up in high energy, um, you know, more ashtanga or powery kind of yoga practices. So for me, these types of asana need to be just as trauma-informed as any other. And I even remember starting off as a yoga teacher, just kind of, I knew I wanted to do some sort of healing work and then going to yoga school and everyone was like, oh, you're going to be a power teacher. <laughs> Being like, oh, I guess I can't do that. But realizing it doesn't really matter. I mean, yoga was really transformational to me and I was doing, you know, rigorous vinyasa. So why, why wouldn't that be beneficial to anyone else? And the trauma-informed platform essentially just, prioritizes student safety. It works a lot with the power dynamics um, teachers have and being aware of that positional power so it's not abused. Um, Conscious choices in language so that your language is inclusive and also reinforces agency in students. And something that I've sort of brought into my own um, trauma-informed approach is just a lot of somatic awareness. Notice what's going on in your body. Um, something I like to do a lot is when I know a posture is really challenging, um, bringing in, say you're in like a long hold and chair pose. I like to bring in movement of the arms, right? Like, can you be with the challenge in your legs, but bring in some softness so you can notice more aspects of your experience and, you know, playing with ways to make the body accessible and something that we can just find more awareness of. And yeah, I, I really love that platform. And 
the thing that I think is most amazing to me about it is so much of these trauma-informed principles go back into yoga philosophy. It's a lot of the things that we're taught to do through yoga philosophy, and they can be brought to our yoga practice or to our asana practice. So I think the platform is, it feels really basic and simple, yet it's been really missing in Western yoga. I wish everyone could see how much I'm nodding because I completely <laughs> agree with you about power yoga there. Uh, I feel the same that yoga has been really healing for me, but I have to be honest that like the last possible place I would go if I was in a tough spot would be to like a gentle yoga class. Just, it's just not my way. It, it actually sounds like torture to me. Like if I'm feeling anxious or depressed to sit there quietly would drive, it would, it's very difficult. I actually find I need to go to classes like that more when I'm feeling more like stable. <laughs> totally. I am the same way. And for a lot of folks too, this is something that I think is misunderstood, even in some trauma communities. When you are flooded with those stress hormones and the body has these really uncomfortable sensations, it's hard to be present in your body. And that's what I love about vinyasa is that you change the poses every few breaths, right? So yeah, you'll be in it, but it, you're moving out of it faster and going into that practice, knowing that you're not stuck in anything, you're moving through it. That in itself is so powerful and can be more approachable for certain people, right? It's not that I think there's any like best type of yoga, but I do think for different people, there's different practices that are going to be the most beneficial, are going to be the most accessible. And it's so different for all of us. Yeah. Um, so then like as a mental health professional and someone who's really thought about trauma-informed uh, teaching in a more trauma-informed way for all movement, um, is are there like phrases that teachers commonly say or things teachers do that that you wish they wouldn't or that, that would maybe <laughs> be better suited to sort of let kind of fall off our teaching wagon, so to speak? Totally. I think one of the main things is that everything needs to be optional. I think mm. as teachers, and I've been in this boat, sometimes it can be a little triggering if a student is going totally rogue doing their own thing. But actually, that's awesome. It means that person feels safe and is able to be in their body. But, mm. you know, as teachers, we put so much heart into our sequence and we're really <laughs> excited. And then when that happens, sometimes it's like a little bit of an ego trip. Um, so really remembering it's not about us. We have our practice. We have our home practice. This is the student's practice. Let them do what feels right in their body. And to me, if someone is going rogue, it's like, okay, good. They're safe in my class. Um, and, you know, it's not something I ever want to assume someone's safe. I mean, we can consciously keep creating safety. But I think reframing my understanding of things, like when that happens. I also think... Um, I think it's tricky with alignment yoga because we want to keep people physically safe, but sometimes when our asks for physical safety are enforced in a certain way, it could actually diminish emotional safety. So it seems silly, but just being kinder and really decentering yourself from um, what students are doing. You know, sometimes I think teachers do need to make a choice between if a student is just not listening to your alignment cue. And there's, you know, we talk about this a lot in the training, there's certain ways you can try to correct alignment without calling people out. And, you know, depending on the relationship, you might have a relationship where you go up to someone or, you know, even on Zoom, uh, say something or use yourself to model an alignment adjustment. But 
I think with alignment in particular, there's a lot of places where um, teachers can actually be really hurtful when they enforce students to practice their way. Um, so that's something you know, it's, it's become the more and more I've studied trauma and, you know, the trauma informed platform, the more and more I see these moments where a teacher is trying to help a student, you know, they're not coming from a bad place, but they actually end up um, acting in a way that can be really anxiety provoking and, you know, make a student not feel comfortable in the space, comfortable in their body. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about. I can remember many times, you know, the kind of times where you just like want to cover your face, uh, uh, me teaching, uh, where I would be so, um, it was so important to me that a class get a certain alignment. And now I think about that and I don't even agree with that alignment anymore, which is <laughs> the worst part, right? Where I would like, you know, be, because I mean, I think the more we practice yoga, the more we just sort of realize like, oh, like even my opinion about alignment has changed about almost every pose back and forth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so totally. I feel that so hard. I mean, and that's something I think like, that's part of this journey and doing the yoga is we continuously grow and change. And it's so important to be able to look at, you know, the mistakes we've made. And I think that's what helps us change going forward is being able to sit with it and be like, Oh, that that's not, that's not what I wanted. That's not who I wanted to be and learn from those moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I actually wanted to ask you because I'm not sure how I feel about it. I'm, probably going to start teaching an in-person pretty soon. And pretty soon there's a possibility, it seems like, hands-on assists would be COVID safe. Um, And I'm wondering, what's your opinion about hands-on assists these days? Well, it's definitely different post-COVID, I guess. So pre-COVID, I'm all about assists. I love um, getting them. I like giving them. I do think there's way too much pressure on yoga teachers to be touching everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just not, if you're not comfortable touching someone, you should never do it. Um, never. Like you shouldn't step out of your own safety for someone else. That's something yoga teachers need to do just as much for themselves as their students. Um, yeah, I, I think it's complicated because touch can be healing. I actually once worked with a therapist who used touch and it was a really powerful experience. And I, I do think touch has so much power and potential. With that, as yoga teachers, there's so many components that matter. What's your relationship with the person? What do you know about their history of touch? And, and this is all assuming that consent has been given. But I think consent goes past the obvious because you know, there's certain group dynamics where people just opt in because that's, that's what you do or um, just different things that affect whether or not people set themselves up to give or receive touch. And I pre-COVID was all for touch, um, but really mindfully past just the opting in kind of, I think there's so much intuition needed when you're actually touching someone like does this person really seem okay with the touch? A lot of times I'd just ask them as I was touching them, I'd be like, hey, is this okay? But even with that, there's a power dynamic and some people might not have the comfort to say, no, go away. Um, Post-COVID, I'm going to be honest, I have no interest in touching people for a while. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It just feels a little, I also think there's going to be a psychological 
getting used to being touched again, because really, aside from maybe our partners, most of us or children haven't been touching that many people. So we're going to have to get used to touching again and feeling safe with that. Um, I actually saw a meme the other day that I really liked, that it was something really cheesy, like instead of saying, let's hug, saying, can I give you a hug? Because it owns ownership. I want to do this rather than like you're expected to want this um, mm. when asking, like, can I hug you? And I think I think when we come back from this, I think there's going to be a lot more um, discussion about touch, right? And maybe that's one of the good things that will come is it'll bring a lot more consent and awareness that touch isn't something everyone wants and we should always be checking in with each other. So yeah, it's complicated. I I definitely, I've been teaching outdoors and I do not touch anyone. I definitely don't feel ready. Um, Yeah, it's hard to imagine when I will. I think... I think a lot of time will have to go by. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, even uh, imagining taking a very deep breath in a room with a lot of other people feels a little. (laughs) Yeah. totally. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's one of those things I think I can take for granted teaching outside is that, um, you know, we're so lucky it's warm in the Bay and we can do that. Um, But there's going to be so many ways we need to readjust to putting our body in certain spaces and remind ourselves, you know, what it's like to be in that, feel in that. And it might feel new, right? Because our relationships with our bodies and space have changed. So that's going to be weird. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely going to be weird. I haven't, have you, have you, could you go to a class inside in the Bay Area yet? You could, but you I, could. Um, <laughs> that's how it is here. You I'm, could. Yeah, I'm not there yet. And I know, yeah, like I know flying is that uh, Laura's discussing when we'll when we'll reopen, and I just love that community so much. I definitely want to support whatever ends up happening, and when when I go back, I'll be ready. Um, but right now, I'm really grateful for my online and outdoor situation. <laughs> for sure, <Definitely>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same. Like it's possible here, but it doesn't seem possible for me yet. Yeah, definitely. Like I think. I feel like I'll need to solo practice in a studio space and just get used to my body being in an inside space and what that feels like again. Cause even my home practice, like I have carpet, you know, I haven't practiced on wood floors in like over a year now. So it's, there's so many layers that are going to be like, I forgot what this was like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, Well, let's talk about that. What is your practice like these days? Oh, well, it's definitely my home practice has changed so much with the pandemic because, you know, when I was teaching in person, a lot of my home practice informed what I taught as a teacher. Like I really just used my own practice to, to figure out my sequences and what, what felt interesting to explore. But now that I'm teaching online, I'm, I'm doing the asana with the class in a way that I never did, you know, in studios. And that's changed my home practice because when it comes to just being present in my body and doing my thing, I, it's kind of taken two very different directions. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic and I actually had COVID. So I lost a lot of strength and just had, um, a really, uh, big shift in my body. So during that time, my, Asana I did as a teacher, that was like my energetic movement. But when it came time for my more spiritual practice, where it's just me being in my body, 
it was more like yin and restorative and rolling on the floor. It was very different than it has looked in the past because I've always been a pretty um, like rigorous vinyasa person. And now it's kind of taken the other turn where I've healed, my body feels better and I'm like reconnecting with energy and I've been doing combinations. Sometimes I'll do my own vinyasa, but I've actually been doing a lot of like strength training um, and that feels really empowering. I've always, for me, that's always been a really, a way to feel strong and confident in my body. And I think especially being a quote, like nice girl, you know, being someone who's like softer, connecting to strength has always felt really just like essential and vital and really wonderful to me. So I've gotten back to more like strength training. Um, and sometimes I'll do asana. Sometimes I'll do like 45 minutes of like lightweights and Pilates type stuff. It really depends on the day. Yeah, it's something that keeps coming up in the show and keeps coming up for me. I feel like the longer you practice, the more whatever it is you do feel, can feel like a yoga practice. Yeah, definitely. And that's definitely something I've taken with the somatic piece is, and also just my understanding, and I'm not an expert by any means, but of yoga philosophy is it's these tools that we bring into everything. Asana is one expression that was specifically designed, but the the mindfulness is something we can carry into anything. And I think really for me, the thing that feels most true about my yoga practice is just checking in with what my body really needs. Not what I think it needs, not what I want it to need, but what's going on in my body? What does it want to do? And letting myself be in that moment and that space. Mm. Uh, Yeah. I, um, Okay. I'm just going to ask. So what do you do when you do the strength training? Because I never know what to do. (laughs) I do like a little bit of everything. I do a lot of, well, and a lot of this too is specific. My body's really hypermobile and not like buzzword hypermobile, but like actual hypermobility syndrome, um, which I think gets confused a lot in, uh, in the pop yoga world. Um, so I actually do just to stay safe in my yoga practice. I need to do a lot of, um, core trainings. My spine is so mobile. Um, So I do a lot, lot, lot of core work. I do, um, I do some kind of bar-esque leg workouts and glute workouts. I do, I do really lightweights. I cannot do heavyweights, but I'll do a lot of reps of lightweights and then a lot of thoracic um, extension and kind of uh, just spinal strength work. Um, I have a friend, you should actually, I don't think you would know him, but he would be a good guest on this podcast. My friend, Mike, um, he's a yogi, but he's never been a yoga teacher and he teaches handstands at athletic playground. And through the years, knowing Mike, he has one of the most sophisticated understandings of movement I've ever encountered. And he's given me a lot of um, drills for just my spine, right? And having to really do a lot of middle rib work because my spine is so mobile. So I do a lot of like handstand and inversion S drills, not necessarily because I'm training them, but just to keep my spine safe because I'm pretty back bendy. Um, I thank you for sharing that. I also really (laughs) wanted to talk about you being hypermobile because I do feel like one thing uh, that I don't, occasionally something that annoys me about sometimes the like 
yoga industrial industrial complex is mm. sometimes there's like this sense of fear of certain things. And I feel mm. like the latest thing that people keep coming to me that they're afraid of is like, oh, someone told me I'm hypermobile, so I can't do yoga. Uh, that actually happened with a guest on the show. And I'm like, like, that's so ridiculous to me. Um, and it makes me angry. Uh, but since you seem much more mm, calm about it, can you, what are, are, is there anything as a hypermobile person that you avoid doing? Like, do you think yoga is dangerous for you? Um, yes and no. So I, I think that as hypermobile people, we need to be really aware of our bodies. Um, also, I think a lot of the things that we're taught um, for hypermobile yogis aren't even necessary. Like it, it kind of goes back to what you were saying about how our understanding of alignment has changed so much over the years. I remember when I first um, started practicing yoga, I was always given the bend your elbows and down dog. And now we understand that that disengages your muscles, right? So there's so much more nuance needed. And I think for me, it comes back to at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much you know about anatomy, you're not living in someone's body. I think we all have the most sophisticated understanding of our own bodies. Sometimes we just need to figure out how to connect back to that. For me, hypermobility, I think it's actually probably why I got into yoga because it was so accessible for me. I was like, oh, this is, I can do everything, you know, mm -hmm. um, in a way that I hadn't necessarily experienced in other movement disciplines. And that was really special to enter something, you know, just in the physical realm and feel really confident. Um, as I got older, I got a lot of mixed messages about hypermobility and, you know, always had teachers who were either glorifying my body or terrified of it and kind of um, scorning me for doing anything bendy. Uh, it was usually some extreme. And I think that, I think things have kind of calmed down a little bit, but I've definitely heard that too. Like you shouldn't practice yoga if you're hypermobile. And I just don't, dis I just disagree with that. I think I think it's so nuanced, right? Like if you're hypermobile and going to practice yoga, for me personally, I need to do strength training or I'd get injured. Um, that's just, and that's part of, that's the kind of yoga I practice. I like vinyasa. I like doing arm balances. I like putting my foot behind my head. If I didn't like doing those things, I wouldn't need to strength train if I was just taking like restorative yoga or hatha. Um, but for vinyasa to keep my body safe, I do need to take certain precautions. And not everyone has the time to, I want to do yoga. So I'm also going to do X amount of strength training sessions a week. It's a lot. It's a big commitment. I do think though that you can really work with your body and understand it. I know so a good example of a pose that I have decided to cut out of my practice is Kaputasana. Um, I used to love that pose. And for anyone who doesn't know Kaputasana, it's like a drop back where from camel, you do a back bend until your head touches your feet. And it's still accessible in my body. But whenever I do it, I feel emotionally overwhelmed. Like it's so opening. It's so exposing. And there's some other shapes like that where I've had to kind of learn my body can do it. Doesn't mean something I should be doing. With that, there's people who train contortion and really consciously condition their bodies so they can do those things safely. So I think it all goes down to the person, personal preference, as well as, you know, 
what you're willing to do so you can move in the way you want to move. And that's not a bad thing, but, you know, say I wanted to get really into contortion, I would have to do even more strength training (laughs) than I'm doing for yoga to stay safe. And all the people I know who do contortion are like so strong. It's amazing how much strength you need to do that kind of practice safely. Um, Mm. So it doesn't mean you can't do it, but I do think you need to do it with, uh, with awareness and care for yourself. Yeah, that's so interesting what you say about backbends. Backbends are something that have always uh, felt very easy to me too. Mm -hmm. And I just realized like, oh, like, oh, but I don't like them. (laughs) I actually, yeah. (laughs) Like once I admitted that, I was like, oh, I can be good at something and be able to do it and just, and be able to safely do it and be like, oh, but I don't, I don't like them. (laughs) (laughs) That's something that I think has really been good for me with the pandemic is I've really realized because, you know, the main asana practice I'm doing is my own. And it's really made me realize what I like and what I don't like, because I'm just sequencing based on my body and sure student requests. But, you know, in I feel like in public classes more often, people really wanted to learn hard peak poses. And now even my student requests are like, I just want to work. I just want to like open this part of my body or explore this type of movement. Like, I feel like we've sort of disattached ourselves from the postures and focus more. It makes me think of like how much of this is performativity, but like now I'm noticing in myself and in my students, it's just an exploration of like what feels good. You know, if you have a carpet, it's not still do arm balances, but you're probably not going to want to like focus on them in the same way that you can with a hardwood floor. And I don't know, for me, that's been a real gift. Yeah. I totally agree. I feel like, well, I, I had a very interesting experience because it was like pregnancy, had a baby, postpartum, COVID. So, wow. <laughs> so I've had a lot of time to figure out what my changing body likes and doesn't like. Uh, wow. Yes. <laughs> in, a, in a really cool way. Yeah. I, that's such a, that's such a silver lining I hadn't thought about. Yeah. It's been really great for me. I really feel like I've been able, and you know, I actually, I don't hate on peak postures. I think it's a great, the body is such a tool to connect with what's going on. And when we do these kind of peak posture practices, things show up like attachment, like being hard on ourselves like this or like that. And I think it can be a really good teacher, but also it doesn't have to be. And I really loved um, seeing what it's like to disattach myself from that piece of my own practice as well as my teaching. Yeah. And to find out like, oh, sometimes there's a peak pose that I do just think is fun, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) Like I will always do a handstand at home because like, I think they're fun. Like it has nothing to do with anyone seeing me do it. Like, I just think they're a good time. (laughs) Yeah. That's me with putting my foot behind my head. Uh, I feel you. I could see, I I can't do that, but especially post children, my body is like, we don't do that anymore. Um, (laughs) This is how we got into this mess, but um, I can't, I uh, now uh, I can't do it, but I do know it feels good. So yeah, it it feels. And it changes like some of the poses. It's funny. I actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, I kind of had an experience where I was like, I don't like backbending that much. And right now I love backbending. It's all I want to do. I still don't want to do Kaputasana. I've realized like, no, I don't need that. (laughs) But like Urbadana Urasana, like, oh yes, every class. (laughs) Oh, maybe (laughs) it'll come back. Yeah, I put my own ebbs and flows and that's been really, it's been fun to just like embrace and explore and just see what's showing up, what I'm in the mood for. 
Well, we'll have to have you back when things are back. Everything's yeah. back to normal, quote unquote, normal. Yeah. <laughs> see what I'm see, doing. What see what you're, what you're doing. doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I so appreciate chatting with you. This has been really great. Thank you so much for being here. And so nice to see you. You too. And I know that everyone is going to want to hear all about you. So where can we find you? Um, I am on Instagram as Emma Stern Somatics. Um, my website is emmasternyoga.com. My email is emma at emmasternyoga.com. And yeah, I'm very easy to find and always welcome connection. Cool. And we'll put all of that in the show notes along with uh, the link for your series about um, trauma-informed yoga. Yes, thank So everyone you. can see on there. So well, nice to see you, Rebecca. You too. Thanks for chatting, Emma. Talk thank soon. Yeah. Bye. Good. Bye-bye. I really can't recommend taking Emma's classes enough. She, her classes are just, especially if you like like a vigorous vinyasa class, um, I just really recommend them. They are really thoughtful about alignment, but also just like fun. And I tend to always be in a good mood after I take her class. So if you're lucky enough to be in the Bay Area in person or check her out online. Um, And that, of course, that course that she is working on with the Driven Yogi uh, looks really amazing and seems like an important thing for all us yoga teachers to be informed about. Um, So we have been working our way through the uh, Niyamas. So just a reminder, the Yamas are from the Yoga Sutras and they're kind of just like the advice for how to interact with the world, with, with other people and with the world around us. And then the Niyamas are kind of like ways to take care of the self, ways to take care of yourself, um, lowercase s and capital S in this case. Um, And we are up to Svadhyaya, which means self-study or self-reflection. And I really feel like this one has been really leading this podcast so much because, you know, every time I have someone on, it's like another way of another lens for me to look at my practice and myself through like I don't know I was thinking about um having Kami Koan and and learning about Ayurveda and I actually uh did a um consultation with her about my own doshas and all of that but anyway um that's like one lens to kind of study myself like oh you know I tend to be this dosha more and, and this kind of thing helps me and this is that this is another way for me to find balance or when I had Becca on and she talked about, you know, kind of use it, using your cycle as a way to choose your physical movement um, if you're somebody who gets your period. And I found that really interesting. And it was another way of kind of like studying myself like, oh, at what time of the month do I feel like this? And at what time of the month do I feel like this? Um, and just I feel like so many people I've talked to in, in different ways have just help me look at myself through another lens. And I think that's what, you know, the yoga practice is, you know, in the asana practice, it's putting our body in different positions and being like, well, how do I feel when I do this, <laughs> right? Or in meditation, it's like sitting there and, and, you know, what happens if I just sit here? Like, what then? And, you know, in a pranayama practice, it's like uh, the breath, studying the body through the breath. Um, so I just think Svadhyaya is like, one huge component of so much of these yoga practices 
um, and so much of these self-care practices really. Uh, yeah. And, and why, like, is it selfish to, to study the self? I, de- I definitely have felt that way before, but I really feel like all of these different ways that I learn about myself, uh, you know, learning about my body is helpful for me to understand the bodies around me. And it's helpful for me to take care of myself so that I can be better to the people around me, right? As long as you do that piece too, as long as you're not just studying yourself and just stopping there, right? It it has to be like this, like, oh, going in to, you know, come back out better, I guess. I mean, what do I know? But that's the way I think about it anyways. Um, okay, well, I am going to end it there, but enjoy your practice. I hope that you are having a wonderful start to summer and you can always email me at Rebecca at homebodiesyoga.com. You can always find me on Facebook and Instagram at homebodies yoga podcast. And again, really, really help me out if you would rate and review the show and subscribe and that way you don't miss an episode. Okay. Happy practicing. Bye.